Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. First off, I want to give a big thank you to you, the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast, for helping us make it all the way to episode 50. If people didn't actually enjoy this show, I probably would have stopped doing it a long time ago, so thanks a lot for actually caring enough to listen. I truly do appreciate it. And so, with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, November 30th, 1998, and we are live from the Baltimore Arena in Baltimore, Maryland. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include... WCW's Great American Bash 1996, where Kevin Nash powerbombed Eric Bischoff through a table. King of the Ring 1994, where Owen Hart became the King of Hearts. No Mercy 2003, where Brock Lesnar beat The Undertaker in a, ugh, biker chain match. And the episode of Old School Raw in January 2014, where Jake the Snake Roberts returned and put his snake on top of a laughing Dean Ambrose. We open with a recap of the feud between Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker over the past few weeks, and if you haven't been watching, hoo boy, have you missed quite a bit. Here's a quick synopsis. The Undertaker hit Austin in the head with a shovel, which resulted in Stone Cold getting a kayfabe concussion at a house show. Austin was then hospitalized and heavily medicated, which enabled The Undertaker to sneak into his room and abduct him. From there, Taker and Paul Bearer took Stone Cold to a funeral parlor and attempted to embalm him alive, but thankfully before that could happen, Kane entered the room in full costume, of course, and brawled with his brother. Austin then regained consciousness shortly thereafter and managed to escape. So in the past two weeks, we've had assault with a deadly weapon, kidnapping, and attempted murder. In other words, wrestling. We then officially begin the show by segueing into footage from moments ago where The Undertaker and Paul Bearer were seen talking backstage. We couldn't hear what they were saying, but thankfully Taker was nice enough to do the very subtle thumb-across-the-throat gesture, so we can probably assume they're going to be up to no good tonight. From there, we cue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs tonight include Bring Back Psycho Sid Mark Henry wants to be in China. I have lupus. Equal rights for jobbers. Pimpin' is easy for me. Dano, I want your hog. Even Jesus hates Bischoff. I slept with Sable last night. And I swear this guy fit this all on one sign. The McMahons, HBK, Mr. Briscoe, Commissioner Slaughter, Mr. Bossman, all chartered members of the GWO equal sign Gay World Order. 
That took up a lot of signage, but clearly with such a brilliant message, he had to let the world know how clever he was. We begin the show with the headbangers coming to the ring, and they are now accompanied by the newly heel-turned insane clown posse. Last week, ICP turned their backs on the oddities and aligned themselves with Mosh and Thrasher, and my main question now would be, what theme song will the oddities enter to going forward? But before I can even ponder that any further, we cut backstage where we see that Stone Cold Steve Austin has now entered the arena, and he's carrying a shovel. He immediately walks to the ring, where he then proceeds to hit Mosh, Thrasher, and Violent J with Stone Cold Stunners, so I guess we can assume from this that Austin is a big Shaggy 2 Dope fan, since he was the only guy who was spared. Also, nice start to that new headbanger ICP pairing, huh? Congrats on the new alliance! Now, take an ass-whipping from Stone Cold and get the hell out of the ring. Austin then proceeds to grab a microphone and remind us that his buried-alive match against The Undertaker is 13 days away. But he doesn't feel like waiting that long. He claims that before the night is over, Taker is going to be wearing this shovel upside his head, and that's the bottom line. Stone Cold then charges off backstage, so it appears that we're off to a rousing start. We then cut somewhere, and we see that Mark Henry is dressed in a suit, with D'Lo Brown helping him get ready. Tonight, the world's strongest man is going on a date with China, so that should certainly be quite interesting. As a reminder, China agreed to go on this date in exchange for Mark Henry dropping his sexual harassment lawsuit against her, which, of course, would certainly hold up in any court of law. However, we then quickly cut backstage, where we see Stone Cold come across referee Jimmy Corderas. He asks him if he's seen The Undertaker, and when Corderas says no, Austin just shoves him out of the way and keeps walking. And speaking of Corderas, I have to give a quick shout-out to him because he actually responded to me on Twitter this past week. Corderas was tweeting about the loudest pops he ever heard in person, so I mentioned a certain moment which happens on the upcoming January 4th, 1999 episode of Raw, and he confirmed that it was indeed a big pop, but not in his personal top three. So thank you for the response, Jimmy Corderas. You are now officially the favorite referee of this podcast. But anyway, after a quick commercial break, Jim Ross alerts us to the fact that both Stone Cold and The Undertaker are on the cover of the newest edition of TV Guide, with a headline that reads, The Incredible Story of How Wrestling Became TV's Biggest Sensation. And I've got to say, I actually remember when this happened, and I couldn't help but think that it was a big deal since, believe it or not, TV Guide used to be a hugely popular magazine before practically every single television had a guide feature that showed television listings. In fact, back in 1998 at the time of this publication, TV Guide actually had the second highest circulation of all magazines in the United States behind only Modern Maturity, which is now known as AARP the magazine. So what I'm saying is, this was a huge deal for the WWF. However, not only did TV Guide put Austin and Taker on the cover, but they also had alternate covers with Hulk Hogan and Goldberg, which caused Jim Ross to take a rare, completely unsubtle pot shot at the competition. Now, they might be sold out, and if so, you may have to be forced to the selection of a, the recent retiree, Hulk Hogan, or the Stone Cold Steve Austin wannabe, Goldberg, uh, but Stone Cold and The Undertaker on those signature collector's covers on TV Guide this week. JR calling Goldberg an Austin wannabe? Did he somehow stumble across my message board posts at the time? Suddenly, I feel very plagiarized. Also, in case you're wondering what JR meant when he said the recent retiree Hulk Hogan, just this past week, Hogan had actually gone on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno on November 26th and said this. 
I've accomplished everything I want to do in wrestling. I've had a great career, and I want to come on your show tonight and officially announce my retirement. Fans have been great. I love you guys, and thanks for sticking with me. And this really helps me segue into being the next president of the United States. We're going to get back on track in the year 2000. Yes, that's right. Hulk Hogan has now retired from professional wrestling in order to concentrate on running for President of the United States in the year 2000. How will this all play out on WCW television now that the biggest star in wrestling history has retired just one month before Starcade, their most important pay-per-view of the year? Oh, don't worry. It'll all be covered in the coming weeks, my friends. We then cut backstage again where Stone Cold is still looking for The Undertaker, and, wouldn't you know it, he comes across a familiar-looking, unnamed woman. Austin asks her if she's seen Taker, and, when she says no, he tells her to let him know if she does. She meekly responds that she will, and Austin then says, Damn right. And who was that random young woman Stone Cold confronted backstage? Why, it was none other than a 22-year-old Stephanie McMahon. And in case you don't believe me, I actually put a picture of this moment up on our Twitter, at Raw Attitude Pod, so you can see Stone Cold wielding a shovel while speaking to the boss's daughter. Fun little time capsule there. And also, I have to give props to our official Raw Attitude Podcast statistician, Philip Goad, who pointed out on Twitter how much the internet would have a field day with this moment if it was Stephanie McMahon's future husband holding a shovel here instead of Austin. Yes, feel free to insert your own burial joke. We then go back to the arena for our first match of the evening, WWF Tag Team Champions The New Age Outlaws versus Brood members Gangrel and Edge, who are accompanied by Christian. If you recall last week on Raw, the Outlaws were defeated by Bob Holly and Scorpio after Mankind provided an assist by smacking Mr. Ass in the head with a leaf blower. And after the match, Billy Gunn and Road Dog actually helped the big boss man and Ken Shamrock beat up the job squad as payback for that leaf blower shot to the head. Vince's Stooges then approached the Outlaws, so it appeared as though the corporation was making overtures toward the tag team champions. And then last night on Sunday Night Heat, we saw the Outlaws in a skybox chatting with Vince, Shane, and the Stooges, so it seems that they may indeed be willing to head over to greener pastures. At the start of this match, the Outlaws quickly jump Gangrel, but Billy Gunn ends up paying for that by getting blood spit into his face, or, if you're JR, Gangrel actually spit a red substance. Billy later ends up jumping Gangrel from behind, but because his chest was still covered in blood, a good portion of it rubbed off on Gangrel, which made it look like he had a bleeding ass. Good times. And apparently in this match, Edge got it into his head that he was a cruiserweight because he hit Road Dog with a spinning head scissors, then followed that up with a top rope Hurricane Rana. And shortly after he showed off that Lucha Libre style, we cut over to the top of the ramp where we see Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon, Ken Shamrock, the big boss man, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Sergeant Slaughter all looking on. The Outlaws then regained control of the match, and Billy Gunn was about to attempt a pile driver on Gangrel. But Christian ran into the ring and smacked Mr. Ass with one of the tag titles before he could hit the move, which of course resulted in a disqualification. The Brood then used their three-on-two advantage to beat the crap out of the Outlaws, until the big boss man and Ken Shamrock ran down to the ring to help out Road Dog and Billy. The Stooges then walked down to ringside and escorted the Outlaws up the ramp, so it appears that the corporation is once again making a very strong play to bring the tag team champions into the faction. Will they be successful? I suppose time will tell. 
We then cut backstage again where we see Stone Cold Steve Austin wandering around what appears to be the freezer area of the building for some reason. Austin spies an open meat locker and proceeds to look in, at which point the Undertaker sneaks up on him, shoves him inside, and locks the door. A giddy Paul Bearer then tells Taker to leave Austin there because they, quote, have bigger fish to fry. I'm not sure who in the company could possibly be a bigger fish than Austin at the moment, but sure. And in the meantime, the rattlesnake will apparently be giving new meaning to the term stone cold. Sorry, was that was that too obvious? Yeah, pro- probably a bit too obvious. We then cut to somewhere else again, where Mark Henry and D'Lo Brown are walking down a staircase in front of a Christmas tree. I'm guessing maybe this is Mark's home or perhaps a hotel. Who knows? Anyway, Henry tells D'Lo that he wants him to come along on his date with China for some reason. D'Lo says he would feel like a third wheel, but eventually he relents and decides to go along in order for hilarity to further ensue. We then head back to the arena where The Undertaker is walking to the ring by himself, even though we just saw Paul Bearer with him moments ago. Taker grabs a mic and says that he plans on keeping Austin on ice until their Buried Alive match in two weeks, which is certainly an interesting change of pace from last week when he attempted to murder him. He then proceeds to call out Kane, and, sure enough, the Big Red Machine does indeed head down to the ring. The brothers proceed to brawl for a bit, but Taker ends up getting the better of Kane and quickly hitting him with a tombstone. From there, we see Taker motion for someone to come to the ring, and a group of men in white coats emerge from backstage, along with Paul Bearer. I guess we're supposed to assume that they're from a mental health facility, but really it certainly seems like Taker is the crazier of the two of them lately, so I think they're going after the wrong guy. And interestingly, even though these are presumably people who work in a psych ward, several of them are carrying nightsticks, which seems like an odd weapon for them to have. Apparently they must have run into the big boss man backstage. Kane is able to take out two of them, but because he is severely outnumbered, he decides to leave the ring and exit through the crowd instead, where he amusingly trips over one of the chairs and almost falls on his ass. The guys in white coats follow him through the audience, but it appears that Kane is able to escape. I'm not sure why he doesn't just shoot fireballs at them, since we've seen that he has that type of power, but maybe that's just my personal bias. I mean, if I had that in my arsenal, I'd be shooting them all over the place like Mario when he grabs one of those flowers, but that's just me. That's just my personal take. We then cut to moments ago, where Mark Henry and D'Lo Brown are walking to a limousine. D'Lo is impressed that Henry has shelled out some cash, but now he's worried because he isn't dressed for the occasion. Henry then says that he has him covered, so he provides D'Lo with a suit coat and a pair of sunglasses. D'Lo is pretty impressed, but then... Henry hands him a chauffeur's hat, which, I will note, got a big laugh from the crowd when they realized what was happening. So yes, it appears that Mark wanted D'Lo to come along, just so he could act as his personal chauffeur. Pretty funny stuff. And after a quick commercial break, we see that Mark Henry has already arrived at China's hotel. She comes downstairs and he offers her a bouquet of roses, which she completely dismisses. They then walk to the limousine where China sees that D'Lo is acting as the chauffeur, but Mark Henry tries to tell her that it isn't him for some reason. More on those crazy kids later in the show. From there, we head back to the arena where WWF European champion X-Pac is making his way to the ring. If you recall last week's episode of Raw, new WWF commissioner Shawn Michaels booked The Rock to defend his WWF title against X-Pac in the main event... And then HBK swerved Pac and smashed him in the head with a chair, allowing The Rock to get the win. 
With that in mind, X-Pac proceeds to call out HBK, and he does indeed come to the ring, so let's pick it up from there. First of all, X-Pac, kid, In case you didn't hear me last week, I'm going to repeat myself. I am the new sheriff in town. I am the new commissioner of the World Wrestling Federation. And if I want any crap out of you, I'll pick it out of your teeth. Whoa! Now, you better remember, I've had chunks of guys bigger than you in my stool. Oh, he is telling it like it is. Well, how wide must your bunghole be then? Uh-oh. Now, nothing would thrill me more, young man, than to hand your ass over to you right now. But the fact of the matter is, I'm not an active wrestler. I am the commissioner of the World Wrestling Federation. And if you so much as look at me the wrong way, uh -oh. I will send your ass down to that money pit in Atlanta so fast, it'll make your head spin. Oh. Now, you seem to be ready for a fight. You got your motor all revved up. Well, guess what? The Heartbreak Kid is going to give you somewhere to go. You going to fight him? Tonight, you will face the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock, the Intercontinental Champion. And by the way, it won't be the Intercontinental Championship up for grabs. You will be defending your European Championship. Now, somebody hit my music. What a, what a commissioner. Got his own music. Always remember, I was DX before DX was cool. First of all, it's kind of sad that X-Pac gets one line in this entire exchange where he refers to HBK having a wide butthole, and it gets basically no reaction from the crowd. If you can't get Attitude Era fans to pop for a butthole joke, something has gone horribly wrong. Second, what the hell was Shawn Michaels talking about at the end there when he said that he was DX before DX was cool? So, uh, did he just admit that DX was lame when he and Triple H were in it? That seems like kind of a strange statement. Third, I will admit I do enjoy the fact that HBK says, Hit my music, and he's referring to the DX theme songs. That's a pretty nice touch there. But anyway, we now have a match for later tonight. X-Pac will defend his European title against Corporation member Ken Shamrock, so will the world's most dangerous man have two belts when the night ends? Stay tuned. We then check back in with Mark Henry and China's date. D'Lo has now driven them to their location, a restaurant called Baltimore Jack, which, as far as I can tell, is now out of business back here in 2018. Before they walk in, we can see that there's actually a line of fans outside the restaurant, so it appears that someone must have clued them in that the Rasslin show was taping tonight. And yes, I say that jokingly, but you're damn right that I would have loved to have been there when they filmed this. 
After that, we then cut to the freezer where the Undertaker had locked Stone Cold, and we can see that the door has been opened and Austin is no longer inside. I'm assuming that Grady from The Shining let him out, but I can't confirm that 100%. And at this point, if you're watching on the WWE Network, we go straight into our next match. However, if you were watching Raw Live at this time back in 1998, you would have seen another segment with Mark Henry and China. They're both sitting at a table, and Mark tells the waitress to bring them some Perry Air, to which China corrects him and says it's pronounced Perrier, so China amusingly tells the waitress to bring some of that as well. Unfortunately, he then points out the fact that Marvin Gaye is playing in the background at the restaurant, and he then proceeds to sing along to the song What's Going On, so it appears that they just decided to edit this segment out from the network entirely, since they don't have the rights to the song. And sadly, that will end up being a recurring theme tonight, if you're watching this on the network. So alas, that means that the water-related comedy stylings of Mark Henry will now be forever lost to history. So we then head back to the arena for our next match, Goldust versus 2018 WWE Hall of Famer Jeff Jarrett, who is accompanied by Deborah McMichael. This is a rematch from three weeks ago on Raw, when Deborah distracted Goldust, which allowed Jarrett to clobber him in the head with a guitar. Later that night, Goldust then attacked Jarrett backstage, where he was eventually saved by the Blue Blazer. And speaking of the Blue Blazer, Owen Hart is joining the commentary team for this match. Owen continues to insist that he's retired, and that he has no idea who the Blazer is, despite Jim Ross's allegations to the contrary. Only about a minute into the match, Goldust hits Jarrett with his curtain call finisher, but Deborah bails him out by putting Jarrett's foot on the bottom rope. From there, Goldust rolled out of the ring and went after Deborah, but Jarrett ambushed him before he could get to her. Eventually, Goldust set Jarrett up in the corner for shattered dreams, but, yet again, Deborah made her presence felt, this time by entering the ring and standing in Goldust's way. She tried to seduce Goldust by showing off her cleavage, but instead he turned around and spanked himself, presumably to say, kiss my ass. From there... Owen Hart got up from his commentary position and proceeded to start beating on Goldust, resulting in a disqualification. With Owen working over Goldust in the corner, a familiar friend showed up, so let's pick it up from there. Yes, that's right. The Blue Blazer came into the ring, raised his arms in the air, yelled out, Woo! And then proceeded to beat the crap out of Owen Hart. And when he removed his mask, we saw that it was actually Steve Blackman. So I think that officially makes this the most personality Blackman has ever shown. Blackman then continued beating up Owen until four WWF officials came into the ring to stop him, but he has now finally gotten some measure of revenge on his retired Canadian rival. After a commercial break, it's time for our next match, and is actually a ladder match for the WWF Hardcore title, Champion Mankind, accompanied by Job Squad members Bob Holly, Scorpio, and your new WWF Light Heavyweight Champion Dwayne Gill, 
versus the big boss man, accompanied by Commissioner Shawn Michaels. For those scoring at home, this is only the sixth ever ladder match that WWF has done, with the most recent one having been Triple H's Intercontinental title victory over The Rock at SummerSlam a few months ago. With this match being such a rarity at the time, it seems awfully random to just put one on Raw without much of a build, but then again, that's the Attitude Era for you. So anyway, before the match can begin, HBK tells the job squad that they have to leave the ringside area and go backstage, which seems like an odd proclamation to make since hardcore matches are supposed to have no rules. Either way, the jobbers do indeed head back to the locker room, but Michael sticks around in order to join the commentary team for this match. And amusingly, while the match is going on, HBK steals the gimmick of the Diamond Doll in WCW as he writes down numbers on a card during the match and provides scores for each move. Mankind ends up getting lower numbers such as negative 2, whereas the boss man gets a perfect 10. And truly, that's probably the only time that boss man's offense has ever gotten a high score. So with Mankind dominating the majority of the match, he was ready to climb the ladder and retrieve his hardcore title... But The Rock ran out from backstage and shoved him off the ladder before he could grab it. The Rock, by the way, is wearing a tracksuit shirt, but he has his standard wrestling tights on instead of long track pants, and he's also wearing sneakers instead of wrestling boots. Kind of a strange look. Anyway, Foley's actually able to recover and fend off both men for a little while, but ultimately, The Rock ends up hitting him with a rock bottom, which enables the boss man to climb the ladder and grab the belt, which means that we have us a new WWF Hardcore Champion and only the second man to ever hold the belt. After the match, Shawn Michaels enters the ring and starts kicking Mankind a few times, after which he amusingly sells it as though delivering the kicks hurt his injured back. However, that doesn't stop him from also taking boss man's nightstick and hitting Foley in the throat with it. HBK, The Rock, and The Boss Man then celebrate in the ring over the fact that the corporation has finally succeeded in taking the one thing Mankind still had left, his precious hardcore title. Poor Mick Foley, I wonder if he'll ever get his revenge on the McMahons. And after a commercial break, we then go backstage where we see that The Undertaker and Paul Bearer have managed to track down Kane in some sort of empty room where there are a bunch of tables and chairs. The Brothers of Destruction brawl for a bit before Taker picks up a chair and levels Kane in the head with it. With the Big Red Machine unconscious on the ground, Bearer then pulls out a body bag and they prepare to put him inside. Taker then tells Bearer to go get the orderlies, so he does indeed wander off to find them. However, we then see that Stone Cold had been hiding behind one of the walls the entire time. And so he proceeds to swing his shovel and hit Taker in the head with it, which actually causes the top part of the shovel to come flying off. I'm sure it was gimmicked, but it did look great. Austin is then left alone, standing over the unconscious bodies of The Undertaker and Kane, and we cut away from there. And then we go back to the arena for our next match, Marvelous Mark Merrow versus WWF Light Heavyweight Champion Dwayne Gill, and they don't specify, but I'm assuming the title is not up for grabs here. Before the match, Mero grabs a mic and proceeds to say this.
strong words from Mero there, so clearly there's a lot on the line for him here in this match. And then, when Dwayne comes out from backstage, we see that he's actually accompanied by the Pasadena Chargers, the elementary school football team that he coaches. And at that point, all I could think of was how a bunch of nine-year-olds just witnessed a man smack another man in the skull with a shovel no more than a minute prior, so I wonder how many of them tried to imitate that behavior with their friends later on at home. Good times. Good times. So as you might expect, Mero was on the offensive for most of this match, easily dominating Dwayne. In short order, Mero actually hit Dwayne with his TKO finisher, but before he could cover him, he was distracted by the appearance of Job Squad members Bob Holly and Scorpio at the top of the ramp. Mero did eventually regain his composure, and he then went to the top rope, presumably to hit Dwayne with his shooting star press. However, with the referee distracted by Holly and Scorpio, a new member of the Job Squad then proceeded to make his Monday Night Raw debut. So with Mero on the top rope, the blue meanie ran out from the crowd and pushed him off the turnbuckle and down to the canvas. From there, Dwayne covered Mero and picked up the three count, which means that, as you heard the announcers say, Dwayne Gill has officially retired Mark Mero. More on that in just a second, but first, in case you aren't familiar with the blue meanie, he's a wrestler who at this point was best known for portraying the blue guy in ECW's Blue World Order faction, an obvious parody of the NWO. His signature look is having his hair dyed blue, wearing way too short cut-off jeans, and sporting a t-shirt that is also way too small, which shows off his, uh, ample stomach. And in case you're a Beatles fan, yes, he does indeed take his ring name from the villains in the movie Yellow Submarine. And now he's here in the WWF, and he was just responsible for helping to end the career of Mark Mero. But in truth, was this actually the final match in the WWF for Mark Mero? Well, not quite. He actually has one more pay-per-view match with the company, which we'll cover on the next episode of this podcast. But aside from that, yes, this is indeed the end of Mark Mero's WWF career, And, for all intents and purposes, this is also the end of his mainstream wrestling career as well, since he doesn't return to another major promotion until he wrestles a handful of matches in TNA in 2004. He made his debut in WCW in 1991 under the gimmick of Johnny B. Bad, which was essentially supposed to be a wrestling version of Little Richard, and Adam from Nitromania can talk all about that next week. He portrayed that character for five years before heading over to the WWF and debuting at WrestleMania 12. He did have one run with the Intercontinental title, holding the belt for only 28 days, but obviously what we will most remember him for is introducing us all to his real-life wife, Sable, who clearly ended up having the more successful career. And so, after more than two and a half years with the WWF, it is time to send Mark Marrow to Wrestler Heaven.
God, I'm the power hour. I'm going to be taking on Barry Windham for the NWA heavyweight title. I'm so excited. It's my first title shot. I've had so many shots at the title when I was a boxer, when I was a champ. And now, my first professional wrestling title shot against Barry Windham. I'm going to have that gold around my waist. I'm going to look so pretty. I'm so excited. Barry Windham, I'm going to kick your Buddha with my two-and-a-half So now, never let it be forgotten that Mark Marrow was retired by Dwayne Gill. Please be sure to tweet him and remind him about that as much as humanly possible. I'm sure he would appreciate it. We then cut backstage, where Paul Bearer has tracked down the men in white coats. Bearer tells them to follow him to Kane, and so they do. And yet again, I must mention that several of these orderlies are still wielding nightsticks, which seems incredibly inappropriate. Can someone please provide a verdict on that? I feel like that's not a weapon they would ever actually carry. Oh well. After a commercial break, we then cut back to the Baltimore Jack restaurant, where Mark Henry is sitting at a dinner table with China, and they each have a glass of red wine in front of them. And if you're watching this on the WWE Network, they overdub generic music that is so loud, it's practically drowning out what Mark Henry is saying. And the reason they do this on the network is because, during the initial Raw broadcast, the song When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge is playing in the background, and they obviously don't have the rights to use that song either. So let's pick it up from there, and yes, I'll play the original broadcast version for you here, instead of the shitty overdub from the WWE Network. You know, I see you kind of warming up to me a little bit. Let me read you this poem. A slow song don't mean nothing without a woman in my life. Like the soul in church voices that make people shout. I like Luther, I like Freddie, I like Aaron Hall, and I like Teddy. But a slow song don't mean nothing without a woman in my life. A toast to you, to me. Well, after dinner like that, you know what happens after dinner. No, no, not, not that. Dancing. You know, get our groove on. Bust the move. Come on. With it. So what you couldn't tell from listening to that clip is that when Mark Henry proposes a toast, China instead gulps down her entire glass of wine and then reaches for the bottle. Also, when Mark suggests they do some dancing, she merely shrugs her shoulders, so it appears as though she may actually be willing to go along with him. I guess we'll see how that plays out. So we then head back to the arena for our next match, and it is the WWF European title match, Champion X-Pac versus Challenger Ken Shamrock, who is accompanied by Commissioner Shawn Michaels, the man who scheduled this match earlier tonight. And once again, HBK heads over to the commentary table to join JR and Lawler to provide more of his snarky banter. Also, shortly after this match begins, we get a quick cut backstage where we see X-Pac's pals, the New Age Outlaws, talking with Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon, and the Stooges, so yet again, the corporation continues to attempt its further expansion. And then, well... I have to make note of this exchange between Jim Ross and Shawn Michaels because it's going to come into play during our next episode. Take a listen. This front chancery now really locked in deeply on, on X-Pac. His arms are getting limp. Referee Tim White checking him out there. Easy, do I, should I get all over that one? That limp thing? Oh, never mind. Your mama probably watching tonight like mine. 
Yes, JR gives us one of his catchphrases when he tells HBK that his mama is watching, and, well, let's just say that what happens over the next week for JR will unfortunately change his life, as well as the commentary scene in the WWF for quite a while. It'll all be covered on our next episode, but I just had to point out that particular exchange because it's a retroactively sad soundbite when you have the benefit of hindsight. But anyway, getting back to the X-Pac-Shamrock match, Pac was eventually able to take control and hit Shamrock with the Bronco Buster. But then Shawn Michaels left the commentary position and literally pulled Tim White out of the ring to have a chat with him. And so, let's pick it up from there. Shawn Michaels is leaving again. What is... So as you heard there, HBK distracted Tim White, which allowed the big boss man to sneak into the ring and hit X-Pac with a clothesline. From there, Shamrock put Pac into the ankle lock, but before he could tap, Triple H made his return to the WWF and started beating up Shamrock, drawing the disqualification and allowing X-Pac to keep his European title. Now remember, we haven't seen Triple H on Raw in roughly a month and a half since he had to have a legitimate knee surgery. Vince McMahon then forced him to give up his Intercontinental title, and a tournament was created in order to determine the new champion. And, of course, the man who won the title in that tournament was... Ken Shamrock, so that ties in quite nicely. So Triple H and X-Pac then scamper up the aisle as HBK, Shamrock, and the Boss Man look on from the ring. And, of course, as you might imagine, the two DX buddies proceed to give them quite a few crotch chops from the ramp. Jim Ross also wisely points out the fact that Triple H is the man who took the DX leadership away from Shawn Michaels, so there's clearly quite a bit of history between both men. All in all, they're doing a great job of positioning a DX versus Corporation feud, with the New Age Outlaws also lurking in that middle ground at the moment. Really good stuff. We then cut backstage where we see Paul Bearer leading the orderlies to the room where The Undertaker and Kane were previously brawling. He comes across the body bag with a large, unconscious person inside of it, so he unzips it, and sure enough, he sees Kane's mask looking back at him, so he tells the men in white coats to take him to the, quote, nuthouse, and not let him out. They then put the body bag on a stretcher and fasten Kane to it so he can't move, so yes, he is indeed on his way to an insane asylum. And after another commercial break, we go back to the Baltimore Jack restaurant where Mark Henry is on the dance floor trying to get China to join him. And once again, if you're watching on the WWE Network, we get very loud, terribly overdubbed music because the song Brick House by the Commodores is playing. And stop me if you've heard this before, 
they don't have the rights to use that song either. So anyway, China eventually does somewhat humor Mark by getting up on the dance floor with him, but instead of dancing, she just kind of smiles and claps along before sitting back down. Mark says it's all right if she doesn't want to dance, and he then tells her that he's going to go, quote, powder his nose so he'll be right back. And so, let's pick it up from there. I'm going nowhere. I'll be right back. So as you heard there, as soon as Mark got up and left, China was approached by three sleazy guys, one of whom attempts to hit on her by saying, Do I make you horny, baby? As if you needed any further evidence that this scene was taking place in the late 90s. When China tells him to get lost, he calls her a bitch, so China responds with a forearm to the face. At that point, Mark Henry returns from what was probably the quickest trip to the bathroom in recorded history, and he then proceeds to beat the shit out of the other two sleazy guys, including throwing one of them across the room and into the side of the bar. China then grabs Mark's arm and tells him that they should go, as Jerry Lawler speculates that China was starting to warm up to the world's strongest man. And hey, I suppose that makes sense. As that old saying goes, the couple that beats up random strangers together stays together. Will this beatdown spark a romance between the world's strongest man and the ninth wonder of the world? I certainly hope so, because I would not mind more scenes of them bitch-slapping sleazy douchebags in public places. Quality television, if you ask me. And so from there, we head back to the arena for our next match, Tiger Ali Singh, accompanied by Babu, versus Val Venus, who is accompanied by The Godfather, and three of his hoes, or, as Stephen Regal called them last week, slappers. In his pre-match sexual innuendo promo, Val mentions how Tiger likes to ask, how low will an American go? But he can tell Tiger that, last night, his girlfriend went all the way down. Simple enough, but unfortunately Val doesn't leave it at that point, because he then gets a wee bit racist as he tells the Godfather to keep an eye on Babu. And Godfather... I'd like you to do me a big favor and keep an eye on that little monkey right there. Burn to Babu. And if he gets out of line, I want you to spank that little monkey. Spank the monkey! I got it. Oy. So anyway, this match lasts less than three minutes, but somehow it still manages to be extraordinarily overbooked, so let's jump in and see if you can keep track of it all. Early on, the Godfather actually sends all three hoes over to Babu, where they proceed to feel him up, much to his delight, but presumably that neutralizes him from potentially interfering in the match. 
Shortly after that, Terry Runnels and Jacqueline then walk down to ringside, where Jackie proceeds to get in the Godfather's face and distract him. Meanwhile, Terry sneaks into the ring and hits Val with a low blow, causing the disqualification. From there, Jackie and Terry share a high five and head backstage. And also, for those of you scoring at home, this was the sixth match on the show so far tonight. And all six matches have had some sort of outside interference. Hooray, Attitude Era. But we're not done yet because, out of nowhere, the Jackal leads Farouk and Bradshaw down to ringside, and yes, we are now being told that this team is called the Acolytes. Although, really, at this point, perhaps the Jackalites might be a more sensible team name. Anyway, Farouk and Bradshaw then proceed to beat the ever-loving shit out of Tiger, Ali Singh, and Babu, which seems like a strange call because I'm pretty sure the Acolytes are heels, and they're beating up another team of heels that no one likes, but what do I know? But there you have it, a three-minute segment crams in six wrestlers, three hoes, and two valets. Vintage Vince Russo. We then cut backstage where we see a tiny television monitor showing Paul Bearer waving goodbye to the ambulance that Kane was taken away in. However, when we pan back out, we see that the people who are watching that monitor are Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kane. Yes, it appears that they pulled a fast one on Bearer, presumably putting Kane's mask on Undertaker's face while he was inside the body bag. Pretty clever, I'll give them that. After a commercial break, we head back into the arena, where we are joined by Shane McMahon. He informs us that Sable may be the WWF Women's Champion, but she only got to that point thanks to Vince McMahon's marketing skills. He then reminds us that Sable got her start with the WWF by coming out and modeling various WWF products, which is true, that was her role for a time. And FYI, in my opinion, the best of those products that she was forced to shill had to be the 1997 King of the Ring inflatable chair, which cost a very reasonable $59.99. And so, in an effort to humiliate Sable and force her to return to her more humble roots, Shane has her come out tonight and model another WWF product for us. And I'm going to play this for you right now just to prove that, yes, in fact, this was a real item that the WWF sold in 1998. Sable is doing what she does best, ladies and gentlemen, and that is modeling one of the many WWF products. And Michael Jordan, you have nothing on the World Wrestling Federation, oh no, because you do not have 100% attitude in the bottle. Yes, new from the World Wrestling Federation is the WWF Attitude Cologne for Men, and new WWF Attitude Eau de Toilette for Women. <laughs> uh, Sable, if you uh, don't mind, and if possibly I can steal a line from The Rock, let me uh, smell what you're cooking. For the love of God, if anyone actually purchased WWF Pure Attitude in a bottle, cologne, or perfume, please let me know, because, good lord, I can't imagine it would smell very good. And anyway, the payoff to this segment was Shane leaning in to smell Sable, so she responded by spraying the cologne directly into his mouth and walking backstage. Shane then tried to play it cool by saying, quote, It also makes a delicious breath spray, and I admit I did chuckle a little bit at that. Truthfully, it was probably a better breath spray than a cologne, I would imagine. But yes, because the women's division is incredibly barren at the moment, apparently the best thing they can think up for Sable to do is have her come out and shill WWF merchandise. Clearly, this is well before Stephanie McMahon single-handedly kickstarted the women's revolution. And now it's time for your main event, and clearly The Rock only takes on the best of the best, 
Last week it was X-Pac, and this week he's up against Al Snow. Truly some stiff competition here for the WWF champion. And also, just for the record, the WWF title is not on the line here in this match, so fortunately for all of us, Al Snow will not be winning the belt tonight. And also for a moment, let's quickly flash back to episode number 44 of the Raw Attitude podcast, which covered the October 19, 1998 episode of Raw. On that show, The Rock entered to a brand new theme song, which was so bad, he only used it once. Well, on tonight's episode of Raw, The Rock is, yet again, entering to a crappy new version of his theme song, which will only end up being used once. I'll actually play a quick 30-second snippet of it for you here, so you can judge the quality of it for yourselves. Do you smell what The Rock is cooking? I'm sorry, is The Rock about to enter, or did I somehow just stumble upon a deleted background theme from one of the levels in Toe Jam and Earl for the Sega Genesis? I can't quite tell. So anyway, a few minutes into the match, Al Snow attempted to hit The Rock with a clothesline, but Rock ducked, and Al accidentally took out referee Earl Hebner instead. From there, The Rock hit Al with a rock bottom, and it appeared that he was going to hit him with the corporate elbow as well, but then... Rock dragged Al into a corner, and he then grabbed Head, laid it in the center of the ring, and instead he hit Head with the corporate elbow. Bit of a kayfabe killing spot there, but hey, the crowd did pop for it. From there, Al grabbed Head and smacked Rock in the face with it, then he went for the cover, but Hebner was still knocked out. At that point, the big boss man and Ken Shamrock emerged from backstage and started walking to the ring, which distracted Al. From there, The Rock used that advantage to hit Al with a rock bottom. Earl Hebner recovered and made the three count, giving the victory to your corporate champion. And interestingly, when they play his theme after the match, they actually play his normal theme song, and not that crappy new one, so perhaps they realized almost immediately how bad it was. After the match, Mankind then ran down to the ring to attack Bossman and Shamrock, but they were able to dispatch him pretty easily. With The Rock, Bossman, and Shamrock beating on Foley and Al, Job Squad members Scorpio, Bob Holly, and Dwayne Gill then ran to ringside to provide some backup, but strangely, no Blue Meanie for some reason. Instead of staying and fighting, Rock grabbed his belt and headed up the aisle, leaving Bossman and Shamrock to get beaten down by the job squad. However, Mankind managed to catch up to Rock and brawl with him at the top of the ramp, and the two of them then fought their way backstage. As a reminder, Rock and Mankind will face each other at the Rock Bottom pay-per-view in two weeks in a rematch of the tournament final from Survivor Series. And if they end up having a good match, I dare say we may see a few more encounters between these two going forward. Call me crazy. We then cut back to the freezer area where Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kane confront Paul Bearer. Austin confirms that they did indeed send The Undertaker to the insane asylum with Kane's mask on, but thankfully we can see that Kane brought a backup mask, and Stone Cold then pulls Bearer away somewhere backstage. And after a quick commercial break, we head back into the arena where Austin and Kane are dragging a disheveled Paul Bearer to the ring by his suit coat. They roll the nervous bearer into the ring, and then Austin grabs a mic. 
he proceeds to offer some suggestions about what they should do with Bearer. He initially suggests that Kane should just beat his ass, but that isn't good enough. He then says that Kane should go back to the locker room and grab that gas can he's been bringing out lately, but that isn't good enough either. And then, Stone Cold pulls out a pair of scissors in a callback to last week's embalming scene where Bearer cut off Austin's t-shirt and then tried to stab him with the same pair of scissors. Stone Cold then gets on top of Bearer and holds up the scissors as if he's going to stab him, but then he gets an even better idea. Austin and Kane grab Bearer and start walking backstage with him. The cameraman continues to follow them, and they end up walking Bearer outside the arena and into the streets of Baltimore, where quite a few fans have now gathered together nearby. So what do they do with Bearer after that? Well, let's pick it up from there. Austin and Kane take it from Bearer. Outside here in the Baltimore Arena, what in the Lord's name is Austin going to do to Paul Bear? Paul Bear thrown down in the street. What? Manhole cover, I guess, to the sewer. No. You don't think you. Yes, that's right, the final moment before Raw goes off the air is Stone Cold and Kane pushing Paul Bearer headfirst into the sewer drain outside of the Baltimore arena. And presumably while he's down there, he also finds the majority of Vince Russo's angles from his WCW tenure. But yes, that is indeed how the show comes to a close. Ah, but wait a minute, if you're watching this on the WWE Network, we actually get eight more minutes of bonus footage called Extra Attitude from after Raw went off the air. And we pick it up with Stone Cold Steve Austin heading back to the ring after presumably tossing Paul Bearer into a literal river of shit. Austin grabs a beer, but before he can drink it, he gets jumped by the corporate champion, The Rock. He starts putting the boots to Stone Cold in the corner, and eventually he tries a rock bottom, but Austin elbows out of it, hits Rock with a stunner, and in a truly historic moment... We get what I believe is the debut of The Rock's over-the-top selling of the stunner, where he lands on his back and then does a backwards somersault. Your mileage may vary as to whether or not you actually enjoy that particular sell job, but let's just say that I am in the anti-category on this one. So as you might expect, Austin then proceeds to drink some beers and pose on the turnbuckles, and eventually Rock staggers back to his feet, which of course results in him getting another stunner, complete with another over-the-top sell job. 
This time, however, Rock is too close to the ropes, so his feet actually end up hitting the top rope, thus making him unable to do the full backward somersault. Only a five from the French judge there. Stone Cold then heads up the ramp, does his celebratory flipping off of the fans, and heads backstage. However, once he leaves, The Rock grabs the mic and reminds the Baltimore fans that he is still the WWF champion. And as you might expect, that causes Austin to return. However, instead of attacking Rock, Stone Cold proposes a truce. He hands a beer to Rock, they give a toast, and each man starts drinking. But then Rock attempts to clothesline him. Stone Cold wasn't fooled, though, and he ducks the attempt and follows it up with stunner number three, complete with over-the-top cell job number three by The Rock, this time with his feet landing on the middle ropes. So Austin again starts walking up the ramp, but when he does that... Shane McMahon emerges from backstage, heads into the ring, and raises The Rock's arm in victory. Apparently, that doesn't sit too well again with the rattlesnake, because he comes back to the ring once more, hits Shane with a stunner, and then he gets Rock with stunner number four, and yes, you guessed it, Rock oversells it a fourth time. And then, because he's such a great sport, Austin helps Shane back to his feet, raises his hand in victory, gives him a hug... And then he hits Shane with another stunner for good measure. Stone Cold grabs one more beer and heads up the ramp, and that is how we officially end things here. All that stuff at the end was obviously designed to send the fans home happy, but hey, in retrospect, that Baltimore crowd can say they got to see eight untelevised minutes of Stone Cold and The Rock going head-to-head, so I guess that's pretty cool for them. But anywho, we're not done yet, so on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap Last week, Raw was victorious over Nitro in the ratings by a relatively slim margin, 4.86 to 4.5. This week, however, things were back to normal as this live episode of Raw put up a 5.0 compared to WCW's 4.25. The WWF just keeps rolling along as that now makes five straight ratings victories for them, but for the sake of comparison, here's what you could have been watching instead over on the TNT Network. Conan defeated Chris Jericho to become the new WCW television champion. Scott and Steve Armstrong defeated Canyon and Raven. Kidman defeated Eddie Guerrero to retain his WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Wrath defeated Bobby Blaze, not to be confused with the Blue Blazer. Sonny Ono defeated Perry Saturn by disqualification. Booker T defeated Mike Enos. Lex Luger defeated Brian Adams, which actually just made me think of when the All-American Lex Luger worked a program against Brian Adams when he was Japanese sympathizer crush back in the WWF. Dean Malenko defeated Barry Windham when special guest referee Dusty Rhodes DQ'd Windham. Scott Hall and Kevin Nash defeated Scott Steiner and Horace. And yes, you heard that correctly. The Outsiders have reunited, but is it for good or just for one night? Stay tuned. And in your main event... Bret Hart defeated Diamond Dallas Page in a no-disqualification match to become the new United States champion. Sounds like a pretty solid show, 
but Sala just ain't getting it done these days when the WWF is teasing murder three weeks in a row. Time to up your game, WCW. And on that note, let's take it to the Raw Synopsis. Truthfully, for the first time in a while, I can say this is an episode of Raw you can probably skip. There were some bright spots, particularly Mark Henry and China's date, Triple H making his surprise return, and of course Paul Bearer being shoved into what certainly appeared to be a non-gimmicked sewer. Other than that, however, everything else was pretty skippable. The matches were mostly nothing special, and the only exception may be the hardcore ladder match, but even that's really only noteworthy because it marks the first time the hardcore title ever changed hands. More of a historical footnote than an actual match worth revisiting, I would say. And, of course, the fact that there was outside interference in six straight matches really puts a damper on things as well. I mean, I know that having people interfere in matches is a staple of the Attitude Era, but when you do an episode of Raw where basically no one loses cleanly, then I think you need to rethink your strategy. And shit, even in the Rock vs. Al Snow match, there was no actual outside interference, but Bossman and Shamrock still showed up at ringside during the match. Not exactly a banner night for Vince Russo, in my humble opinion. So yes, feel free to go ahead and pass on this particular episode, but don't worry folks, I assure you there's some great stuff coming up on Raw in the very near future, and I for one am certainly looking forward to covering it. So on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, and so, since Sable was modeling WWF Cologne on this show... I will now leave you with a clip from WCW's Halloween Havoc 1999, where Medusa came out to ringside and modeled the company's Nitro Cologne. The one snag there, of course, was the fact that the legendary Bobby the Brain Heenan was on commentary at the time, and he then proceeded to absolutely bury the very product they were trying to sell. So enjoy that clip, and I will catch you next time when Adam from Nitromania joins the podcast to discuss the December 7th, 1998 episode of Raw, which features a controversial classic Attitude Era moment. See you next time. Smells like the uh, smells like a bathroom at the Newark airport.